and welcome to the Feel Your Feelings podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Makanjuola. This episode that you are about to listen to will be the last episode of the first season of the Feel Your Feelings podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Roy Richard Grinker, an anthropologist and George Washington University professor, about his new book and about the significance of mental health, especially on young people today. Here's a preview of what he said. And the student said, isn't anybody normal anymore? (laughs) And I could only reply, no, nobody's normal. Nobody's ever been normal. Normal is just a concept that we created in order to characterize people as abnormal. Please stay tuned to hear more. Thank you, Dr. Grinker, for being here. And thank you for joining the Feel Your Feelings podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. And I always start by asking this question, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, I It sort of feels uh, a bit like we might have uh, turned the corner in two ways. One, uh, by getting to the point where more and more people are vaccinated. But right. I also feel that we've gotten to a point where people are more openly acknowledging uh, that uh, mental health issues are uh, things that affect us all. And right. that nobody is uh, living independent of mental health issues, whether it's themselves or their friends or their family. And I think the COVID pandemic has made it possible for us to understand that um, everybody's stressed. I completely agree. Uh, I'm in my last year of graduate school, so it's kind of hitting at this point. <laughs> and so just kind of slowing down and sitting back and looking at the bigger the bigger picture of everything rather than just like focusing on all of the negative things yeah. um, has been really helpful for me. So yeah, I, so I, I know that you just released a new book called yes. Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. How did you come up with this title? Oh, it's from a student, basically. Um, I was talking to my students at uh, at George Washington University about Mm -hmm. the prevalence rates of different conditions. And we went through the various percentages of what percentage of people meet the criteria for autism, ADHD, major depression, eating disorders, and so on. And I could see that the students were tabulating these figures in their minds and seeing it all add up. And the students said, isn't anybody normal anymore? (laughs) And I could only reply, no, nobody's normal. Nobody's ever been normal. Normal is just a concept that we created in order to characterize people as abnormal Mm -hmm. or as to, um, to, to, to shun them or discriminate or make people feel that they, they didn't conform or didn't fit in. And that it's about time we really interrogated and challenged that illusion. Interesting. Nice. So can you briefly talk about why you wrote it and the audience that you wrote it for? I wrote it for a general audience, which is a little unusual for a professor. Um, Most professors are writing books that are geared at graduate students and other scholars. Right. But uh, I felt that this topic in particular was one that was important for a wider readership. Mental illness is the leading cause of disability in the world. Uh, Even in the US where we have a fairly robust medical system and like to think of ourselves as progressive, 60% of people with a mental illness receive no 
mental health care or counseling. Um, it is uh, uh, a persistent problem that mental illnesses have been seen as stigmatizing, shameful, something to keep secret. And I felt like we were in the right, going in the right direction now and we're making progress. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I could identify the factors that were leading to that progress, maybe we could reinforce them because the history of the stigma of mental illness is not one of a linear progression toward the better. It's a roller coaster. Sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. So what are the factors that make things better and how can we keep them going? Yeah, yeah, those are very, very good questions. And that roller coaster analogy that you use is also very uh, true as well. In 2019, you did a TED talk about the same topic as your book. Why do you think that our culture um, or our society created the stigma of mental illness? And do you believe that my generation, like Gen Z, can help kick this stigma? I really am optimistic about your generation. But the thing is that we have to understand that the reasons why the stigma of mental illness has persisted is not because of ignorance or lack of education or lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. Whenever something is considered stigmatized or abnormal, it is not because people are uneducated. It is because they do not conform to our ideals of what a good person is or what the ideal person is. And so mm-hmm. if we want to challenge the stigma of mental illness, we have to challenge the norms that we try to get people to conform to or the ideal or the illusion that there is something called normal. So what happens in the industrial revolution, in the early industrial revolution in particular, um, we're talking about you know the 18th century, is that the ideal person becomes the worker, the producer, the person who's totally independent of others, autonomous. Of course, nobody ever is any of those things. Right. That's the ideal. And the person who's abnormal is the idol, the person who doesn't work for whatever reason, whether it's a physical disability or a illness or a mental illness or something, or, or, or they're impoverished. Um, and so they can't produce much and they're, they're, they're put in asylums. And it is only in asylums that doctors for the first time and scientists had enough non-working people in a space that they could analyze to be able to separate people out into different categories. So before asylums, there was no such thing as a mental illness. Obviously there were people who were depressed, who starved themselves, who injured themselves on purpose, who had, were, who had anxiety or intellectual disabilities or mm-hmm. autism or whatever it might've been, but they were sick. It was an illness. Insanity just means no, you know, not in health. And it was only then when asylums are developed that we get the first separation between illnesses that are distinctly of the body and illnesses that are distinctly of the mind. And until we get that division, you can't stigmatize mental illnesses because they don't yet exist. Mm -hmm. And if capitalism and industrialization produced the conditions in which a distinctly mental illness could be produced and valued in a certain way, then it should be able also to do the opposite and, and change our values. And I think that's what we're seeing. 
um, particularly um, as um, the we see civil rights, disability rights, uh, uh, all kinds of other uh, movements like trans transgender rights, gay LGBTQ rights, all sort of converge to say there is we we there is no norm anymore. Yeah, that is that is the thing that we should all be right. Right. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't treat suffering and we shouldn't diagnose mental illnesses. Diagnoses and illness names are important to drive treatments and care and intervention, but it does mean that we should get rid of this illusion that somehow if you don't conform, you're abnormal and you should be ashamed of it. You should be ashamed if you're gay, you should be ashamed if you're transgender, you should be ashamed if you have major depression or an eating disorder. These are essential parts of the human condition and they are forms of suffering just like any other. Right, and I think you touched on this earlier in what you said that my generation is helping to kick this stigma, at least from my standpoint, being 23 years old, I, I notice me and my peers around me are very outspoken on these topics, or at least outspoken on telling other people how we're feeling about what's going on around us, whether that be politics, whether that be um, the pandemic, whether that be like xenophobia. Um, but in terms of mental illness specifically, do you think that young people are doing the right thing in terms of speaking up and speaking out about this? Yes, you know what they're doing? They're taking ownership of the terms that used to hurt and reframing them mm -hmm. as terms that don't always hurt or, or don't always mean that you're weak or you know, that somehow you're, someone is defective or impaired. Right. I mean, this is the key. I, I actually, it's funny. I end the book with an 1850 novel. I mean, I talk about the Scarlet Letter. You probably read it in high school, right? Yeah, you know, I've heard of it. <laughs> right, but, and so everybody thinks, oh, it's a, it's a Scarlet Letter is about this woman, Hester Prynne, and she commits adultery, and she's punished by having to wear the Scarlet Letter A on her blouse, and then she's kind of exiled from the community. But there's an ending to that story that people often forget which is that she comes back to the village after many years away and she's still wearing the A. Mm -hmm. And everybody says, why are you still wearing the A? It's been like years and years and years. That punishment's over. Right. And the harshest judges say, take that letter A off. And she goes, oh no, the A is no longer a stigma. And she uses the word stigma or Hawthorne, the, the, the author. Yeah. She says, it's no longer a stigma. It's a sign of my strength and endurance. And by advocating for herself and by taking ownership of that and redefining that A, almost like it's a degree, ancient degree in clinical psychology, everybody else then respects her. And then when the other people in the village, after she's come back from all those years, have their own problems, who do they go talk to? They go to talk to her because they know she'll understand that she's more like them than they ever realized. And that's what people are doing today too. They're taking ownership. So when the student in my lecture class stands up and says at the first day of the semester, hi everybody, I'm so-and-so, I have Tourette's syndrome. I might say something that might startle you or surprise you or even that you may find offensive, understand that I have Tourette's syndrome. Mm -hmm. The student who says to me, I need some extra time because I have attention issues. The student who says, 
I don't look like I'm paying attention because I have bad eye contact, but that's because I'm on the autism spectrum. Feel free to call on me, professor. These are students who are advocating, giving voice and saying, I'm not gonna let other people take control of how these words are defined. I'm going to define them myself, ourselves. Right. Yeah, you're two steps ahead of me there. I was, I was just going to ask you um, about uh, your students, but before I get to that question, I want to um, kind of talk about one of the main reasons why I decided to create this podcast. So I created this podcast to try and help bridge the gap between my generation and mental health. And that includes admitting to ourselves that we are not as okay as we might seem. Um, why do you think it is important for young people to talk about mental health? Most mental illnesses are developmental, meaning that they have their onset in late adolescence and early adulthood. And the quicker that we pay attention to those symptoms and the quicker people get to care, the better their outcomes. There is no need to suffer if you don't have to. There is no need to isolate oneself from social supports if those social supports are available. Um, and so we know that the earlier that clinicians in, uh, intervene to help out somebody with any kind of mental illness or developmental disorder for that matter, mm -hmm. The, the, the better the outcomes. But it takes a long time for people to get to care. And young people need to be getting to care when they have those first signs and not wait until, you know, it's a life or death situation. Suicidal mm -hmm. ideation is very common among young people. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death among young people. You know, if you, if you break your leg, you go to the hospital right away. You'd never say, oh, I'm not sure it's that bad. It's just yeah. a fracture, right? Yeah. But the average time in the United States from first psychosis, for somebody say with schizophrenia, mm -hmm. from first psychosis to first specialized mental health care visit is 74 weeks. Oh, it's a year and a half. Wow. And so we need younger people to understand that that these are 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 you know if not childhood then certainly adolescent or early adulthood onset disorders yeah thank you for sharing that and now moving into your experience as a professor um over the past year what sort of changes have you noticed in your students like has there been more of a willingness to to discuss what they're going through or not mm -hmm. really well, Oh yeah, because you know COVID is a, a, a universal stressor. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, concur. apart from, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's just a stressor. It's, it, 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 it was, it's been a killer too, right? But, right. but, but uh, you know, w when we talk about the world, not everybody's dying, not everybody's getting COVID, but everybody's stressed by it. Right. Um, and. One of the things I show in the book, in Nobody's Normal, is that when there are times of global stress, that is when we see the stigma of mental illness decrease. Because then it's, ex it's almost expected it's or collective. Yeah. Collective, yeah. Exactly, it's collective. And so when, what are the times when we see mental illness stigma decrease? 
World War I, World War II, the Korean War. Uh, Vietnam War is a little bit of an anomaly because the military denied that they even had mental health issues. Um, at first, it's a little bit of an outlier, but I'm, you know, if you follow the news, nearly every head of state has also referred to the pandemic as a war. Yeah. And so having a mental illness now, or even if you don't want to call it a mental illness, having anxiety, depression, loneliness, whatever that might be, that's more the norm. Yeah. And not the norm in the sense of the ideal, like I was just critiquing earlier, but norm in the sense of the typical. Yeah. And now I'm just thinking, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Like that we're all feeling this way. And no, I, it's bad that we're all stressed. Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. The silver lining to it, it is that it, 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 the pandemic and all the stresses we've experiencing, it's kind of an invitation for us to understand that we all suffer. Mm -hmm. and at different times and places due to different factors right. and that to do so is doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you you know and and it's just a it's a matter of reveal i mean take anxiety we all have anxiety we all have to have anxiety mm -hmm. we didn't have anxiety we wouldn't look both ways before we crossed the street and we'd get hit we have to have anxiety it's it is it's a, an instinct it's an instinct yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's a tool of survival right right but there can be, but we all exist on spectrums. And at some point that anxiety may go over the spectrum into a place where you can't get your work done or your social life is impaired or you're not eating or sleeping well. Yeah. And at that point we say, well, it's not just anxiety. It's now something that we should call an anxiety disorder. Right. Because that diagnosis will drive some kind of treatment. And it doesn't mean that you're sick or you're not sick. It just means that you've gone over into that, you know, over that border that is a judgment call based on how we, you know, talk to family and, and our doctors or whatever. I mean, you and I will know the difference between yellow and orange, but we'll never agree on exactly the spot on the spectrum where orange becomes yellow or yellow right. becomes, right? That's a judgment call human beings have to make about when there's an impairment uh, that is enough to be treated. And that's when the mental illness terms become useful is when they can drive some kind of treatment. Right. So now a deeper question, uh, why is mental health important to you? Well, to me, well, uh, for, uh, for several reasons. <laughs> um, two reasons that are personal. Uh, one is that I come from a long line of psychiatrists. My great-grandfather was a psychiatrist. My grandfather was a psychiatrist. My father was a psychiatrist. I was pressured, told I should, I must become a psychiatrist. <laughs> uh, I'm married to a psychiatrist. Okay. Um, and, um, and so mental health has been the major focus of my family's history. And so it, that, for that reason, you know, I couldn't escape being interested in it. Um, the second thing is that I have a daughter with autism. I wrote a book about her called Unstrange Minds. Uh, it's about her, but it's also a social history of autism. And she was born at a time when nobody wanted to even say the word autism. Mm. Uh, now it's something that has um, has changed in yeah. its usage and its, uh, its meaning and its power. And so I've seen in her lifespan this significant change 
and openness to understanding autism as a spectrum that can include both challenges, but also can include strengths. And then there's the professional reason why as an anthropologist, I'm interested in mental health, which is that I look around the world cross-culturally at how people give meaning to things when they don't go the way they expect. And as I said before, mental illness is the leading cause of disability in the world. Um, as anthropologists, we've got to be concerned with it. Thank you for sharing that. And anthropology was actually something that I was interested in studying before I got into um, mass communications, which is what I have my bachelor's degree in, specifically like cultural anthropology. Um, so yeah, that still fascinates me in, in some aspects. So yeah, I, that's a side conversation, which I could talk to you all day about like anthropology. Well, but <laughs> the, book, the book that we're talking about, Nobody's Normal, is a work of cultural anthropology. Really? Okay. I'm a cultural anthropologist and, and, and that's the you know, that that's the discipline or the subfield in which I work. Yeah. And one of the lessons that I try to, um, to try to um, uh, describe in the book is that anthropology isn't just the understanding of other cultures. It's the understanding mm -hmm. of other cultures and then the return home to look at your own world in a new light based on what you learned by stepping outside of it. Right. And I, you know, every time I do any study in places I've worked, Namibia, India, South Korea, South Africa, I come home and something changes for me because I see something different. In this TED talk that you're referring to, I talk about a little boy named Geshe whose parents couldn't even understand my question when I said, who's gonna take care of him when you die? Because there's a whole village there. And so, you know, unless I was saying that the entire village would somehow be, you know, wiped out there would always be somebody there to take care of him. And the first thing I did when I came home was I thought, that's right, social supports are the most important thing. And mm -hmm. I, I contacted cousins and aunts and uncles. You know, I renewed my ties with, with my um, extended kin because I realized that just as the secret to Geshe's kind of insurance for life is the extended network that he has of family, so too should that be the way for my own daughter. That's beautiful. Who are some of the people that you are inspired by? Well, I'm really inspired by um, uh, of the autistic people in particular um, and transgender people who speak out and advocate um, for themselves. Um, and, you know, I, like, Think of how inspiring it is. There was a, a viral letter on LinkedIn recently by a man named uh, Ryan Lowry who just said, give me a chance. Um, I'm autistic. He's asking mm -hmm. employers to give him a chance. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm inspired by people like him and also the employers that give him people like, like Ryan a chance. There's a whole chapter called The Dignity of Risk in my book. And that chapter says that there's a paradox that we tend to encourage the quote unquote normal to take risks and even to fail. But when it comes to somebody with a disability, we say, oh, they won't succeed. Right. We won't give them a chance. Mm -hmm. And there's something dehumanizing in that, mm -hmm. that we should all have the right to take risks and we will all, should all have the right to fail. That's part of, 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 of positive growth and development. That's wonderful, that's wonderful. I have a whole list of people that I, also, I'm inspired by, <laughs> again, separate conversation. Um, 
but that, that was people that inspire us. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of them, what I, what I like to see. So recently, like Prince Harry and Meghan Markle did their interview and seeing Meg, seeing Meghan be vulnerable and talking about um, the realities of royal life, I think was very insightful and just seeing her vulnerability as a strength um, was also very um, inspiring to me because it shows that no one's perfect. Everyone has stuff going on and, and yeah. And no amount of wealth or fame exactly immunizes us from human suffering. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so the last thing is just, is there anything else that you would like to add um, before we leave? Well, I really would just like to say that um, when a professor like me mm -hmm. uh, writes a book that is in large part inspired by his students, it's important for those students to know that. Um, obviously, I had a lot of students help me with the book, and they're, the, they're in the acknowledgments. That's wonderful. But, but most of the students are not in the acknowledgments, right? Because they're just, you know, the student who asks the question, isn't anybody normal anymore? The student yeah. wears the t-shirt that says, I hate normal people, <laughs> who, who says, you know, I have autism, and, um, and, and, and says it as, you know, just part of who that person is and not you know, in order to, um, uh, to say something that is secretive or shameful. Uh, and so I, I want George Washington University students, because those are the ones I teach, uh, just to know how inspiring they've been. And um, their advocacy, I know, is not only uh, something that is accountable to them, uh, they must have had good teachers in the past and good parents and siblings and, and others to support them in building that kind of advocacy. And, um, you know, we have the right to speak uh, about ourselves and define ourselves in the way we want to be defined right. and not accept the way that somebody else wants to define us. Right. Thank you so much. Loved it. Um, Great. Happy that, to talk with you. That was everything. I just want to say thank you once again for your time today and for joining me for the Feel Your Feelings podcast. It was really a pleasure um, listening to you and just like soaking in this conversation. So Great. I'm glad I could you. help. Thank you for listening to the Feel Your Feelings podcast. I'd just like to give a special thanks to the staff and faculty at the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University for supporting this podcast, particularly my capstone advisor, Professor Barbara Benitez-Curry. Please stay tuned for the next season of this podcast, where I will bring on more voices that can educate, enlighten, and inspire you. Gen Z, this is for you. Thank you. Tune in to this podcast on Anchor FM, and as always, don't forget to keep calm and stay well.